the Blaze Radio Network. On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. one 800 913 and go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Saturday's America's greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. Happy Easter weekend. I hope you have a, a wonderful weekend. Thanks for uh, for joining us on this probably busy weekend of yours. We have uh, a bunch to do, obviously. I don't. I never know where to start. It's always the biggest problem uh, of the show. Uh, but heck, let's start here. So my wife last weekend was out of town. So I did what any guy does when the wife is away. I watched war documentaries. And there's two that I have to tell you about. Well, one was excellent. One was fine, but I learned something that, that I think is interesting. Um, so the one that's awesome, and I'm telling everyone about, and I'll just be honest, I've probably told 12 people and like two of them think it's cool. So I've, I've <laughs> so I don't know if I'm just not doing a good job telling it or if it's actually not that cool, but that can't be. I, I know it's awesome. So I'm going to try to do a better job of, of, of telling uh, about the document. It's called Above and Beyond. It's on Netflix. I'm sure you can get it somewhere else too, but it's on Netflix if you have it. It's awesome. It is about the beginning of the Israeli Air Force in 1948. So here's how this went down. Arab-Israeli War, 1948. So just before this, the British controlled Palestine. And they said, all right, fine, we're out of here. We're going to leave on May 15th, 1948. And that was the day, the very first day that Israel was officially going to become a country, May 15th, 1948. So that meant that all the Arab states, Egypt, Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, all of them were preparing and ready to attack the brand new country of Israel on May 15th, 1948. It's the exact same thing Barack Obama did when he said, we're leaving on this date. So all the the rebel forces or whoever in Afghanistan, they said, okay, great. So they just waited until that date. Same thing here in 1948. So Israel wasn't a country. The UN said they were going to be a country, but they weren't a country yet. They had no way to defend themselves. So the, the, who would be the president of Israel, right? He comes to America and he asks for help. And Truman, the president says no. And not only does he say no, but he makes it illegal for anyone to sell arms to Israel. So a handful, four, four Jewish American pilots who fought in World War II, they decided that they were going to go fight for Israel. 
But there's a couple problems, obviously. There's no Air Force in Israel. There's no real military structure or hierarchy. They have no planes. And they're not in Israel. They're in... One was from Newark. One is from, I think, like St. Louis. And the other is from California, right? They're from all over the country. So this is what they did. They decided to go buy surplus World War II planes in, I think, the Nevada desert. And they started a mini airfield in Burbank, California. So they got they got these planes. Now, they can't get the planes to Israel because it's illegal, right? Truman said it's illegal to sell arms. But it turned out one of the guys had a friend whose nephew was like was somehow related to the president of Panama. Like there's some bizarre connection to the president of Panama. So they started a fake company called Panama Airlines based out of Panama. So now they're like an official. So that's how they're going to get the planes over to Israel by saying, Oh, we're, we're an airline. We're an air force. What? So they're on their airfield in Burbank and someone from the federal government comes by and inspects the planes. And he's like, guys, these are not passenger planes. These are old World war two fighter planes. And the guys are like, what? What are you talking about? No, we're Panama Airlines. Some guy goes in the garage, pulls out a can of paint, and writes PA on the tail of the plane. Like, look, Panama Airlines, there it is. And the guy's like, no, 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 you guys can't fly these. You're not a real airline. And the guy goes, uh, you're going to have to shoot me. They get in the planes, they take off. Not kidding. They go to from California to New York, to Panama, to Brazil, to Morocco, to Rome, and then they go to the one country that's breaking the embargo with Israel is Czechoslovakia. All right, so I'm going to jump ahead here. Here's the crazy part. They're in Czechoslovakia. They get reports that 10,000 Iraqis are marching into Israel. They're six miles from Tel Aviv. Now, Israel, again, no defenses, none. The Iraqis, are just, they're in a single file line down the road, and they're just going to march right into Israel, and that's it. Israel won't even exist. They're six miles away. So these four pilots in these planes that are thrown together. I, I left this stuff out. Like I'm leaving a ton out, but there's scrap planes. Like there's the propeller from one type of plane and, and uh, the fuselage from another type of plane. And the pilots were worried that they couldn't even get them off the ground. And sometimes they couldn't, but the four of them take off and they drop bombs on the 10,000 Iraqis. The Iraqis see these four planes coming out and they see the explosions they assume that that's the beginning of a much larger air force that's coming their way they retreat these four guys made ten thousand iraqi soldiers retreat and if they just kept going then that they would have won. I mean, there's no doubt they would have won there was no one there's no defenses whatsoever it is the coolest story and there's more after that too but the guys are were still alive i think the movie was made like two years ago the guys it's called above and beyond um, they're, they're still alive and they're telling the story. And it, like, what, how do, I've never heard any of this. And they're talking about how this is the most important thing they've ever done in their lives. And they talk about how proud their families were and they got tears in their eyes. One guy said, God put me on this planet for that reason. So you got these like bad news bears guys, just like a couple of cats from again, all over the country don't even know each other. And they come together and they truly save Israel. Unbelievable story. It's called above and beyond. Definitely watch it. If you got 90 minutes, it's funny and it's an amazing story. Two quick facts about it. 
it's made by the sister of Steven Spielberg, Steven Spielberg's sister. I think it's the first or only movie she's ever done. Um, and one of the four guys, one of the original four, was the dad of Pee Wee Herman. I'm watching it, and and this guy comes up, and he's talking about his dad, and his name's Paul Rubens. And I'm like, you you look like Pee Wee Herman. So I looked it up, and I'm like, sure enough, there's Pee Wee Herman's dad was a World War II fighter pilot and and in the beginning of the Israeli Army, Israeli Air Force. Who knew? All right, so that's movie number one, Above and Beyond. Check it out, ASAP. It's awesome. Second thing I saw, and I want to relate this to some current events, World War II from Space. This was a History Channel documentary. You can check it out on YouTube. I watched it on YouTube. Uh, so, you know, it's a History Channel documentary, so it's you know super broad, dramatic music, cheesy graphics, all that stuff. But in it, they mentioned the Manhattan Project. Now, let me bring it to today first. California, a week or so ago, Sacramento passed... Uh, an increase in the gas tax. Okay, so we already have the highest price gas in the country for a couple different reasons. One of them, we have a unique blend in California of gasoline that no one else in any other state uses. So there's a special refining process that has to take place. It's obviously more expensive. So that's one reason why California gas is more expensive than anywhere else. Also, now we have 70 cents a gallon in, in taxes. On top of that, the federal 18.4 cent gas tax. So you're getting close to a dollar per gallon in taxes already and they just raised it another 12 cents so crazy crazy and it's all to raise money to fix the roads huge story i'm not going to go into it here none of the money is going to go to roads it's a total scam everyone fell for it the only way it passed is because one republican senator state senator needed to switch his vote to a yes and vote for the democrats and they did because they the governor promised him 500 million dollars to extend a train line from san francisco to his district so a total total sellout total hack sellout republican uh up in sacramento caved and that's the only reason this thing passed at all don't even get me started i could go on it forever point is this gas tax over 10 years is raising 50 uh 52 billion dollars 52 billion dollars to fix potholes okay now i want to go back to the manhattan project keep that in mind today gas tax 52 billion dollars fix the potholes i I've never studied the Manhattan Project. I'm sure there are people listening now. You maybe know a ton about the Manhattan Project. I knew nothing. I read a paragraph about it in my 11th grade history book. Right, that's it. So this is where they developed the nuclear bomb. So I had this vision because I never really learned about it. So I just had to kind of make it up in my brain. I had a vision of, I don't know, maybe 20 people. What do you think? Like when you think of the Manhattan Project, developing the nuclear bomb, like what's the vision you have? I think 20 people led by Albert Einstein in a laboratory in, I don't know, like maybe New York, maybe Los Alamos. And I don't like, I don't know. And that was, that was my vision of uh, Manhattan project. Turns out Albert Einstein had nothing to do with it. It was led by another physicist who wanted to warn the president FDR that Germany was way ahead of us on developing a nuclear weapon. But he was worried that FDR would ignore his letter because he was just some random guy. So he called Albert Einstein to sign the letter and give it a little bit of weight so that FDR would read it. So that was all of Albert Einstein's involvement with the nuclear bomb. That's it. So FDR still ignored it. The third or fourth letter, the uh, the, the, the scientist, his name's uh, Szilard, Leo Szilard, he said, listen, I wrote a paper about this. I'm going to publish it. 
and Germany will read it and they will get the nuclear bomb if you don't give me the funding to build this for America. So he blackmailed the president and it worked. So I thought it was just a group of guys, 130,000 scientists in 30 different laboratories across the country. Took them six years. And in today's dollars, it cost $26 billion. That is a huge enterprise. 130,000 scientists were involved in this. Okay, so what does that have to do with today? The t- again, the tax increase, the gas tax in California to fix potholes, $52 billion. So $52 billion to replace a couple potholes across the state? Maybe uh, make some bike lanes, fix a bridge here or there? $52 billion? But for half of that, half of that, we employed 130,000 scientists at 30 different laboratories across the country for six years to make a nuclear weapon for the first time in history. Half as much money as it takes today to fill some potholes. Anyone else find that pathetic? Do you find that absolutely pathetic that it takes twice as much money today to fill potholes as it did to make a nuclear weapon 75 years ago? How inefficient uh, we have become. Inefficient and bloated. But again, don't get me started on any more on the gas tax. Just wanted to throw that your way. So anyway, the first movie is called uh, Above and Beyond. Definitely watch that. And uh, the second one is World War II from Space, which is just pretty fun to watch too. one 888 I got a phone call on my local show the other day uh, from someone saying, Slater, listen, this gas tax and everything in California and across the country, it's so crazy. How do we, how do we turn the tide here? How do we turn the tide? How do we get people to see? the truth. I took my best stab at an answer. I want to share that with you next. Mike Slater show the blaze radio network. Spread the- You're listening to Mike Slater on the blaze radio network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. This is Mike Slater. He said, I was talking on my local show the other day about the craziness of California, and there's no shortage of that. And a bunch of people called in, super frustrated. It's really hard to live in this state. The weather's so nice, but gosh, Sacramento is the worst. It's unbelievable. So people called in and, and asked, Slater, how can we change things? What can we do? Very, very frustrated. And my answers are, because I've been answering that for six years, I've been living here. Uh, my answers are never satisfactory. You know, I, I think we want a button to press or a, a, a lever to, to pull and it's fixed. Uh, it's never that easy. And truly, 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 the answer that everyone can do is just to talk to people. Just talk to people and talk to friends about the truth. And I, I like whenever I say that, I, I just feel everyone listening to me like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> like I was looking for some shortcut answer. One thing I can do right now. Like, mm, it's not, 
It's never going to be that easy. And it shouldn't be that easy. It's interesting to me how, how quickly... There's two things. How quickly people believe something and then they believe it quickly because it's based on who they hear it from. So real quick, did you, did you hear the story the other day about the girl that was found in the jungles of India raised by monkeys? Did you see this? This was just a couple days ago. Uh, let me read this article. It says, uh, th- take notice. Like As I read this, your brain is going to start making an image of what this looks like. Take notice of what your brain is doing. Take notice of the imagery as I read this. Police in India are searching for the parents of a young girl who was found in a forest and appeared to have been living with monkeys. The girl was with a group of monkeys with whom she appeared to be very comfortable. When a police officer attempted to rescue her, the monkeys and girl screamed when the officer detained her. When the officer called the girl, the monkeys attacked him, but he was able to rescue the girl. He sped away with her in his police car while the monkeys gave chase. So that turned into headlines, girl raised by monkeys. People are calling her girl Mowgli from the Jungle Book. Even though the Jungle Book, he was raised by wolves, but whatever, minor detail. So what imagery do you get from that? I'm thinking, I I get these imageries of mama monkeys feeding her bananas, you know, peeling bananas with her feet and giving her, and and then she plays around with the baby monkeys and she's swinging from the trees and all, right? She's She's raised by monkeys. Yeah, this never happened. None of, none of that happened. The, the people who rescued her say there were no monkeys around. She wasn't raised by monkeys. There's no... I mean, no doubt she saw monkeys and heard them from a distance, but she wasn't raised by monkeys. Like, people have this imagery like she was adopted by a monkey family. No. That, that never happened. So why do people believe that? Why do people believe that? There was a Pew poll the other day asked for confidence in different institutions. TV news, trusted by 21% of people. Newspapers, trusted by 20% of people. So 80% of people don't trust these sources. 80% of people do not trust TV news or what they read in the newspaper. 80% don't. But everyone reads an article about a girl being raised by monkeys in the jungle and every single person's like, oh, yeah, that happened. That makes sense. Hmm? Wow, it's crazy. Wow, wild. You know, girls swinging from the trees. Hmm? Whoa, whoa. Why? Why? Why do you believe that? If, if, you, if 80% of people don't trust what they read on the TV or what, they, or what they see on the TV or reading newspapers, why does everyone believe the story that the girl was raised by monkeys when clearly she wasn't? What's the difference? It's one very simple thing. It's a couple of things, but I'm just going to say one. One, it's, this, this one is the most important and relevant thing. Most people, 62% of people, 62% of Americans get their news from Facebook. And when something is shared by a friend on Facebook, they're more likely to trust it. So if I gave you an article from the Huffington Post about a girl who was raised by monkeys. You don't trust the Huffington Post. So you look at that and you say, no, that's ridiculous. But if you go on Facebook and your friend, Chris, or whoever, who's a, who's a friend that you trust, right? that friend of yours posted an article by the Huffington Post on their Facebook page, 
Most people look at that not as an article from the Huffington Post, but an article shared by Chris, who you trust. That's why people, although although they don't trust the Huffington Post, they still trust their friends. And that same article, people will read it because their friend shared it and they'll look at it and say, oh, wow, your girl girl raised by monkeys. Wow, that's crazy. Unbelievable story. So people don't trust the news, but they trust their friends. So use that. Go talk to people. Fill the void where friends don't tell them the truth. Whenever someone doesn't hear the truth from a friend, then they are more inclined to believe what they see on TV or read in the newspaper. But if you can get there first and you can share actual truth, people trust you. People trust you. If you don't share the truth, then they're going to trust the governor. Right? So when the governor, I'll just bring it back to California, but I'm sure you have a similar example, whatever state you live in. The governor says, we got to raise gas taxes because the money's got to go to fix our roads. They'll believe them. But if you go to a friend and say, the money's not going to roads. And here's the tax already. It's too high. They'll trust you over the governor every time. Every time. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater. Happy Saturday. Happy Easter weekend. So I want to chat a book here. I chat about a book called The Fourth Turning by Neil Howe. You've probably heard more about it in the last three months than than ever. Uh, I don't know when it was written. A while back, a couple decades, I think. So Neil Howe's uh, theory is that since 1500, history goes in cycles. And it's about 80 years or so per cycle. And each cycle has four different stages. There's a ton to the book, but let let me go really, really quick through the four cycles, like super quick. One sentence. You have the high, and this is when institutions are strong and the individual is weak. So, uh, or I don't want to say weak, small. So uh, World War II, institutions, the military, the government, that strong individual is, is small. Then you have the awakening. So this is when those institutions are attacked in the name of, of individual autonomy, right? And, and people rebel against social discipline and they want to achieve self-awareness instead, right? That's the awakening. Then you have the unraveling. This is when, this is the flip of the high. This is when the institutions are weak and the individual is strong and flourishing. And then finally, the crisis, usually a war. But this is when individualism is gone because there's some perceived threat to the nation, right? So, so civic authority comes back People, again, begin to associate themselves as members of a larger group, right, for security reasons and things like that. So that's a super, super short. I mean, it's a long book and there's a lot to it. But uh, so these cycles, each cycle is about 20 years or so. And again, four of them. So it's about 80 year cycles and round and round and round. One thing that's interesting, quick side note about this theory, which I, I like, is let's say you're raised in a period of the awakening. Okay? If you're raised in that period, then you have a certain set of values. If you're born in the next, if you grew up in the next section, the unraveling, then you have a, a set of values. And each group has people who are grow up in it with different sets of values. The people who grow up in the awakening period and the high period, those values are very different. 
but let's say you grow up in the high period you uh the values you have are very closely aligned to someone 80 years ago who grew up in a different cycle but the same period this high period so so those two people so you let's say and the question is where are we now right uh, but if you grew up in the high period, you are very similar to someone 80 years ago who grew up in a different high period and very similar to someone 80 years before that who grew up in the high period. And then another 80 years before that who grew up in the high period. So these sets of values, you may be different from someone who was born 20 years from you, but 80 years, very similar to pretty interesting. Okay. So, um, let me, let me shorten this all in case this is confusing. We've been using this for a couple weeks now, uh, Four sections. Hard times create strong men. That's like World War II. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. It's after World War II. Good times create weak men. Baby boomers. And weak men create hard times. I think that's where we are right now. Weak men are creating hard times. And the cycle goes around and around and around and around. Okay. So the reason this book is getting uh, a lot of attention now is Steve Bannon likes it. And Steve Bannon's a Nazi, we're told. So if he likes it, then it's awful. And that's why it's in the news a lot. Now, the author, Steve Howe, was, uh, no, sorry, Neil Howe, Neil Howe, was interviewed on NPR. It was a long interview, but, and I just want to play one clip of it here. This is near the end of the interview when the NPR host <laughs> pretty much had enough and couldn't hold his disagreement back anymore because there are philosophical differences between uh, a Neil Howe and the host. Generally speaking, if you are conservative, you believe in a cyclical history. You believe that history repeats itself and you believe that history goes in cycles. Progressives believe in a linear history. And if someone who believes in each of those, if two different people are having a conversation and one believes in cyclical and one believes in linear, they're, they're going to have a tough time <laughs> communicating with each other because they have totally different perspectives on, on life and where we are in history. Really interesting. So I want to play this clip here. It'll make more sense. There's three people in this clip. First, it's a New York Times reporter. Then I think the, the author comes in. And you'll hear the NPR host as well. So it starts off with the New York Times reporter saying, uh, okay, so you, author, you believe in a cyclical history. So does that mean you want to do things that will lead us to the next turning? Right? So let's say you're, you're Bannon, Steve Bannon and Donald Trump and you believe in cyclical history. Are you going to tear down social institutions specifically and purposefully to usher in the next turning that that's the question for the author here it is no doubt that if you believe that crisis is is upon us or and and that a worsening crisis is imminent that you are going to seek to do things that not only disrupt but dislocate and destroy what we've come to know as 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 our societal norms. Neil, are you is, whether you intended it or not? Are you encouraging people to kind of race toward the rapture here? Uh, no, um, um, 
I'm, I'm again. I want to come back and say I'm describing what is uh, simply. Maybe what we have not seen. everybody and, agrees with you on that. Well, you could have a progressive okay, or linear view okay. of history that would have nothing to do with this. Let right? me let me let me actually address that because uh, it's kind of interesting, and we we have a long discussion of linear, cyclical, and chaotic views of time mm-hmm. uh, in our book, and mm-hmm. it's very interesting in the West, you know, and, and the great monotheisms are very oriented around a linear view of history. You know, history starts at one place and it ends. You know, and and the and the idea is to get there. Uh, but it's interesting that 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 um, pre-modern societies, in particular Eastern societies, have much more cyclical view of time. All of the uh, first translations of our book into foreign languages, by the way, have all been into Asian languages. Uh, kind of curious to me, uh, you know, into Mandarin, Chinese, uh, 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 Japanese, or recently Vietnamese, and and the 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 Confucian cultures are very oriented around generational change and very much in tune with cyclical ideas of history. Yeah, you know, I spent in 10 the years West, in Asia. I get it, in the, but but I'm in the kind West, of devoted also to the West, where we masters in, in of our West, destiny. Neil, in the where West, we jump in and in work the, on it. Okay, let me let me just finish that sentence. Mm-hmm. In the West, we are very much uh, oriented toward this idea that either through our faith or through technology, we will kind of jump out of history, right? Uh, well, there's going to be this period, this plateau. We're going to kind of escape it, just you know, another five years or something. But but you look at the you look at these patterns, and you say, well, they do tend to. It doesn't mean that we don't face all kinds of choices. We can navigate these periods well or poorly, and we discuss that extensively in our book. This is not anti-choice. It is simply saying, be aware of the season you're in. Okay. So, two views of history, cyclical, linear. The left, uh, th- they believe in linear. And as you heard the author say, that history starts at one point and then it ends at some point in the future. And the idea is to get there. We got to get to the end, right? Then there's, and I'll get to what that means in a second. Um, the left thinks that the cyclical worldview, the one I have, and if you're a conservative, you probably have to, uh, the left thinks that that's dangerous. That's a dangerous view of history. I think the linear one is. Here's why. If you have a linear view of history, then that means your goal is a utopia at the end, right? At the end of the rainbow is a utopia and the goal is to get there. It's a very evolutionary mindset, right? So, so if you're a progressive, you probably believe more likely to believe in evolution, which means we came from apes and we're better than apes, right? So we're evolving better, right? We're evolving into a better species, and and we therefore also we must keep evolving into a better place. Okay, so we're we're evolving and, and we're on this march of history to a better utopian ideal. Led, of course, by the enlightened people, right? By the university professors, by academia, by the elites, by the progressives. If you oppose their vision of the utopia that we're all marching towards then you are an enemy to mankind. You're not just wrong. You're, 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 you're in the way. You, you have to be eliminated. Like, we're on a march here. We're going to utopia. So we, we, we have to get rid of you. This is why it's easy for many progressives to group everyone they don't agree with with Hitler because they just put everyone in the same category of people in the way of our march. Right? Our march towards utopia. You're in the way. You got to go. 
How dare you not be as enlightened as I am on this march to utopia? Then every moment along the way where it's not utopia yet, because as the author said, it's always like utopia is like five, a couple of years away, right? So every year we're not there. Maybe there's a war or poverty exists or something. Whatever moment we're not in utopia, which is every moment, that means there was a wrong turn somewhere. Uh, someone made a wrong decision and someone's to blame. So conservatives are to blame. You got in the way. Second Amendment advocates, if it weren't for you, then we'd be in utopia by now. Donald Trump, oh my gosh, how can this be? I thought we were marching in the right direction. We're so off. So someone's in the way in their march towards history, march towards utopia, someone's in the way and someone's screwing it up because otherwise we'd be there by now. And it's always your fault. That's, that's the point. Now, progressives like Obama uh, would, would comfort themselves when bad things happened by saying, listen, Sure, things are things are bad now, but and President Obama would say this all the time. The arc of the moral universe is long, and it bends towards justice. Now that's a Martin Luther King Jr. phrase, who we stole and steal. He took it from someone else, uh, and there's way more context to the way that Martin Luther King Jr. used it. So I, I criticized the president, the former president, in the past for. Uh, mischaracterizing that sentence, but this is how he always applied, right? The moral universe, the arc of the moral universe is long and it bends towards justice, right? That's very much we're going towards this ideal. Well, you know what I say? Maybe it doesn't. <laughs> what do you mean? The arc of the moral universe is long and it bends towards justice or not. Or it doesn't do that. What does it do then? I got to take a break. I'll polish it up next. one 888 Send me a tweet on Twitter uh, if you think history is cyclical or if you think it's linear. I'm just curious. We'll take a quick little vote here. Slater Radio on Twitter. S-L-A-T-E-R Radio. Slater Radio on Twitter. We'll wrap this up next. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. So everyone is tweeting me saying cyclical. Uh, I think it is as well. So again, just I, got, I only got two minutes. So I got to pick up where I left off. Um, so President Obama said he, people, progressives like him will say the arc of the moral universe is long and it bends towards justice. Mm, maybe, maybe, maybe it doesn't. Maybe that's not how that works. Uh, there's a great book. I've, I've heard it's a great book. I haven't read it. It's called uh, A Hobbit. A Wardrobe and a Great War. I really look forward to reading it. It's about C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, who were two best friends, geniuses. Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And then, of course, C.S. Lewis wrote Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe and a bunch of other things. And it's, the book's about how World War I shaped their Christian faith. And their worldview, mine as well, is that every human soul is caught up in a great story against the shadow of evil. We are in a fearsome war, as C.S. Lewis called it, a state of war. C.S. Lewis said that we are in enemy-occupied territory right now, and it's our job to engage in a campaign of sabotage against the enemy. Who's the enemy? 
Liberals, no, 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 no. Much more than that. We are always in a great war, but most people don't realize it. They think we can just march on through to some utopia, but we can't. We have to fight the war that's around us right now. And how successful we are at that depends purely on first recognizing it. <laughs> recognizing you're in a war, you're in an act of sabotage right now, and then acting accordingly. And that's what the author of The Fourth Turning says. He says, be aware of the season, like the cycle of history. Be aware of the season you're in. Because the longer you're in denial, the worse the consequences will be. It's just about being aware of, of where we are. I know there's a lot there. And, and uh, it's a big, it's a pretty deep topic, right? The takeaway for me is this. Like, this used to be common sense. Growing up your entire life, You've heard people say history repeats itself, right? I remember in whatever fifth grade, there's a poster up on the wall in the classroom that said, learn history or you're doomed to repeat it. Nothing new under the sun, right? These used to be pretty basic and accepted truths, but that's not the progressive mindset anymore, right? That's not the progressive mindset that history repeats itself and is in cycles. They think it's linear. And I think if you go through the world thinking that you're going to make a lot of enemies of people who really aren't your enemies because you're always looking for someone to blame because you're not there yet, right? They're always trying to go somewhere better, somewhere there, as opposed to recognizing where you are. Big difference. All right. I want to come back. Uh, fourth turning is the name of the book. Uh, Neil Howe, H O W E. want to come back, talk about uh plan in New York. I think this is, I think this passed. I think this is a done deal. Free college. Ah, it's great. If you think a college is expensive now, wait until it's free. We'll talk about that next. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. 
Insiders, America's greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy Easter. So I want to talk. Uh, let's do a little economics. Why not? Right? It's been a while. New York State, the first state to now offer free public college tuition for working and middle class families. It's important to define that, right? Uh, if your family makes less than $100,000 a year, then you will get free four-year college at one of the state schools in, in the SUNY system. That's a pretty solid income, right? I mean, and in a couple of years, it's going to go up to $125,000 a year. And you know it's only going to go up from there, and eventually it's going to be everyone, right? But uh, $100,000 for a family, it's, it's a lot. In, in San Diego, which is an expensive place to live, it's I think the median household income is like sixty-seven thousand or sixty-nine thousand. So a hundred thousand dollars, pretty good. By the way, in a couple of years, you're going to see way more people in New York State making ninety-nine thousand dollars a year than a hundred thousand dollars a year, right? Because let's say college costs thirty thousand dollars, so it would be better. Let's okay. So let's say college costs thirty thousand, and right now you make a hundred and twenty thousand. It would be better. If you made 99,000 and then you would qualify for free college, then if you made 120,000 and then had to pay 30,000 for college. So you're going to see a lot of people in New York state, way more people making $99,000 a year than, uh, than a hundred thousand dollars a year because their kids will then get free college. Anyway, um, let's see. This is the governor Cuomo governor of New York. He said today college is what high school was. Now, when I first read that, I went in a totally different direction than the rest of his sentence. So let me tell you what he said. He said, today, college is what high school was. It should always be an option, even if you can't afford it. So he's saying that college is now like high school and that it's free. I look at it and say, college is what high school was, meaning high school is so bad and the standards are so low that college is basically just high school. It's 13th grade. And it is. I want to tell a story coming up in a couple minutes about a professor who was recently fired from a community college school because he refused to dumb down the standards in his college classes like he was being told to do. So they fired him. In California, we have three tiers of higher education. We have uh, the best schools are UC schools, like UC Berkeley. Uh, then below that, you have state schools, Cal State schools. And then below that, you have community colleges, right? So remedial classes, 70 to 80% of kids going in to community college in California have to take remedial classes, which means they didn't learn how to read or write in high school and do math. It's still 40% of Cal State kids have to take remedial classes. That's the middle level. And then even in the UC system, you got 20, 30% of kids have to take remedial classes still. So like what? College is what high school was. And you can talk to, talk to any college professor, any single college professor, and they'll tell you how kids will go into college not knowing how to read or write or do math properly. Certainly not at a college level or what has always been considered a college level. College is now what high school was. And when you make it free, it will truly turn into just the 13th grade because it's an entitlement now. So now it's not K through 12, it's K through 16. That's what it's now K through 16 and kids will still graduate college knowing less than what not many decades ago people graduated high school knowing. 
So it'll take longer and people will learn less. Let me talk about the entitlement part of this. So I forget when this passed, like a Tuesday. The next day, there was a state assemblyman in a poor area in the Bronx who says, whoa, 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 whoa. This is unfair. This is unfair. This whole bill is unfair. Because sure, it it gives away free tuition, but it doesn't pay for room and board. And if you make $99,000 a year, you get the free tuition, but you can afford the room and board. People in my district can't afford the room and board too. I I heard that. I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. It's been a day. You've you've had this, this new thing for a day and you're already asking for more. It will never end. It will never end. There will always be some inequality that the government and you, the taxpayer, has to even out somehow. It will never, ever be enough. One day after you now have free college, you're like, oh, wow, we got to pay for the books too and college and uh, room and board and food and all that. Jeez. Here's my main point, though. If you think college is expensive now, wait until it's free. This bill does nothing, nothing to lower the cost of college. It just masks it by making other people pay for it. That's it. It's the same with Obamacare. Obamacare did nothing to lower the cost of healthcare. It just masked the high cost by having other people pay for it. No government program like this ever strikes the root. Remember Henry David Thoreau, we quote this every day. Uh, There are thousands hacking at the branches of evil for every one who strikes the root. None of this stuff ever strikes the root. College has always been affordable. How many people listening now paid for their college education with a summer job? Okay. It's always been affordable. It only got expensive when politicians started offering government loans and handing out money like candy. So originally college, the the limiting factor for how expensive college could be was what people could afford to pay. Right. That was it. I, well, how much can you make in a summer job? I can make this much money. And okay, there's it. We we on my local show, we had people call in who went to San Diego State, and they're they're calling in saying that when they graduated in the seventies, for a semester it was something like sixty three dollars. And everyone who called in, they said, yeah, tuition was sixty three dollars, but I had to pay twenty bucks for a parking pass. <laughs> so right, so so twenty dollars of of the was like almost the parking pass was almost as expensive as the tuition. Right now it's you know, $20,000 or whatever. So college was always affordable. The limiting factor was how much you could pay. Then when politicians starting out, started handing out unlimited amounts of loans, then the limiting factor for how expensive college could be is well, how many loans the government will hand out to people. But now that there's not even loans, can you imagine how much these universities will grow now that there's no limiting factor at all? Because it's totally free. Totally free, and you don't even have to loan. Like, like if you're in, if you're thinking about going to college, and you're like, ah, oh, is it worth it? Is it worth taking out two hundred thousand dollars of loans to go to get a degree here? Like, how long is that going to take to pay off? And Bob, is it worth? Mm, probably not. So there was a limiting factor, but now it's game on. There's no. It's like, yeah, sure, all right, but I'll, and the colleges are going to say oh, it's a hundred thousand dollars a year, and the taxpayers are going to pay for it. Unreal. It is totally game on now in New York for college. So just wait and see. You'll see the, the universities in college, the, the universities in, in New York are just going to be incredibly expensive. I want to take a break. Here. I want to come back and chat about the uh, dumbing down of colleges. 
Wait until you hear this story. This is happening. Listen, you know what's happened in, in uh, high schools for a long time. And now it's happening in colleges. And this is just another step towards 13th grade. one 900 But you know what? It's also a story of a, a professor standing his ground. And that we can respect. I'll, show you that. I'll tell you that story next. Mike Slater, show the blaze. Radio Network, spread the word. This is... Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. Mike Slater. Slater. So, uh, Bernie Sanders here, quote, if we are, this, he's talking about the New York deal to make all four-year college free. If we are to succeed in a highly competitive global economy and have the best educated workforce on the planet, public colleges and universities must become tuition-free for working families, and we must substantially reduce student debt. So there's a really, really big assumption here, right? So he says in order to uh, have a high, you know, highly competitive global economy and the best educated workforce, then everyone's got to go to college. The giant assumption here is that colleges actually teach kids things. <laughs> that's, that's a big assumption. The assumption here is that when a student leaves college, they have more skills than when they entered. Or than they otherwise would have gained by just working for the previous four years. It is remarkably easy to leave college with a piece of paper that says you got at least a C- minus in every class. But did you actually learn anything? Did you learn anything that makes you more marketable to someone else? Right? Bernie Sanders assumes that just going to college makes you smarter. Just being there. Like through osmosis, you just get smarter. And if everyone goes to college, then we'll have the best educated workforce in the world. No, not necessarily. We may just have a bunch of people with degrees. But that doesn't equate to anything. Nothing real. There's this move now, because college is so expensive, to turn four years degrees, to get a four-year degree done in three years. So there's different schools that are now offering three-year degrees. So this is a professor at the University of Chicago. His name's Alan Bloom. Uh, He says, colleges extend coursework to four years for no reason other than to get more of your money. The Cornell plan, this is when you can do a four-year degree in three years. The Cornell plan dared not state the radical truth, a well-kept secret that colleges do not have enough to teach their students, not enough to justify keeping them four years, probably not even three years. If the focus is careers, there's hardly one specialty outside the hardest of the hard natural sciences, which requires more than two years of preparatory training prior to graduate studies. The rest is just wasted time. So it's a professor at University of Chicago is like, you know, this is, this is such a waste. And some schools now, and I guarantee you now that it's free in New York, they're going to extend the program to five years. I guarantee it. And there's more and more that that was already happening even when I was in college 10 years ago. Five-year programs. Come on, why? Just more money. 
That's it. Just charge more. Just drag it out. All right. I want to share. This is a uh, professor of philosophy at the Community College of Aurora in Colorado. He was fired. Why? According to the administration, lack of effectiveness in implementing the philosophy curriculum redesign. What the heck does that mean? The redesign. So Colorado has a new program called the Gateway to Success Initiative. The Gateway to Success Initiative. Sounds nice. So if you told me what the Gateway to Success Initiative was, if you, I would say, oh, or if you asked me what the Gateway to Success Initiative was, I would say, oh, it's, it's probably a program to, um, how would I word it? Like to, to improve, to make people smarter, right? Like to get, to get kids to, so they know more, they know more relevant information, um, gateway to success. So they know things that will make them more successful when they graduate, right? More successful in the real world. Uh, that's, that's what it sounds like, right? The gateway to success initiative. Nope. The goal is to get more kids to pass their courses so then they'll be more likely to stay in school and then graduate. That's it. Let me say it again. Maybe, maybe uh, I didn't say that right. The goal of the Gateway to Success initiative is to make it easier for kids to pass their courses so that they're more likely to stay in, so that they're more likely to be encouraged and feel good, stay in the community college system, graduate and then go to a four-year school so if a school can boost uh, passage rates then they say that will encourage students to succeed so why did this professor say no it would have required the course redesign would have required him to cut 20 percent of the course content right off the top 20 percent fewer writing assignments and a max of eight pages of writing a semester that's it eight pages a semester he would have had to offer small group activities every other class session, like it's kindergarten. And also make works by women and minority thinkers 30% of the course content, which is absurd. Here's the worst of it all, though. He had to, he had to keep teaching in this dumbed down way until this, get this, 80% of each demographic group past his course not 80 percent total not 80 percent of all of his students but 80 percent of each demographic group so 80 percent of his black students 80 percent of his hispanic students 80 percent of his i don't know gay students i don't know how they break down like each demographic right but 80 percent of each so think about this that means if he has four black students right four black students in his class three of them are super smart one's a total idiot or doesn't care doesn't go to class he has to pass all four because if not, the passage rate of black students in his class would be 75%. And it's got to be 80%. So he has to pass the other one or else he's going to lose his job. Because he's got to get it over 80% passage rate. See how stupid that is? So he said no. He said no because the charter, and he had a specific reason. He said the charter of the community college system in Colorado, and I'm sure in your state too, is to prepare kids to transfer to a four-year school. And he says, dumbing down the coursework and dumbing down the expectations doesn't do that. It doesn't help kids prepare for college and the real world. Let me quote from him. He says, simply put, this class is now much, much easier to get an A in or pass than it was previously. It's now so much easier 
that currently every single student on my roster has an A+. And to my recollection, the last time I was involved in a course set to this difficulty level was early high school. If the people were giving A pluses, if the people we are giving A pluses to in the courses are only doing the equivalent of high school work at other colleges, I believe that sets up our students for harm later on. Sure, our success rates will spike through the roof, but we'll be graduating people who think they've received a college education, but in reality have only done high school level work. And the harm from what I see as a lack of rigor will become evident after they've left our college and are forced to compete with their peers from other schools. Does it, when you hear that, doesn't that make perfect sense? It makes absolute 100% perfect sense, but he's the bad guy. He was fired. He was fired for what he just said. Unbelievable. So when New York makes college for everyone, it's only going to dumb down the standards even more. And it's going to make the whole thing even more meaningless than it already is. Remember Cuomo, he said, today, college is what high school was. And here's this community college professor saying, this college course I'm teaching is the same as a high school course. So today, college is what high school was. Now, Cuomo was talking about, again, it being free, like college is free, just like high school has been free, free. But, but, but deeper than that, it's it's the same academic level. College is now what high school was. So what are we doing? So what's the better thing to do? Stop with the loan programs. Stop, 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 stop. No one can afford to go to college without a loan. No one, it's impossible. A couple super millionaires, right? But no one can afford to go without the loans. So if you stop the loans, what are the colleges going to get no students? Of course not. They'll lower their prices. They'll lower their prices so everyone can afford it. They'll have to cut the number of administrators and decrease costs and all the rest. So that's number one. Also, long term, we need a total change in our culture that says you don't need a college degree to be a success. Right? We have a culture today that says you're only a somebody if you have a college degree. And that is a very, very expensive lie. That is not true at all. So we need a culture change. But the worst thing, the worst thing you can do is make taxpayers pay for every 18-year-old to have a four-year drunken party, which is what college is becoming more and more of. For I, I, so I, I was talking to a professor about this, a philosophy professor, actually, in San Diego. I, I think college is... point So... You got to break it down a couple of different ways. You have the hard sciences and that college is really important. I don't know what percentage, let's say it's 50, 50. I don't know what percentage of colleges are hard sciences versus, you know, humanities, but let's say it's 50, 50 for the kids who have humanities degrees who are getting humanities degrees. 90% of them don't need to go to college. And I was one of those 90% don't need it. And the professor I said, I was talking to, he's like, well, maybe it's a third don't a third are okay. And a third do. No, I think only 10% need to, and the rest just need to go get a job or read a book. But instead, we have colleges, and they're just, they're just parties. It's all this Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network.
on the Blaze Radio Network. And of course, hmm, hmm. Yeah, well, maybe I'll save this. I'll save this for a second, actually. Uh, I was going to talk a little bit about how colleges have just become... So they're drunk in part. I mean, that's, that's for most kids, it's just it's a fun thing to do for four years, but it's a very, very expensive, fun thing to do and go cheer for the football team and stuff like that. But um, I just hope, my son's six months the other day, uh, six months old, I hope that in 17 years, 17 and a half years, the whole college system implodes by then because it's worthless and... It's now listen. I've said this before, and people there's people listening who are currently paying for their kids' college. It's you just happen to be in a tough time. Like you got to do it. You got if you're now in college age, you got to go to college. It's the way it goes. But like I'm saying, I'm hoping in the future that's not the way anymore. But right now it is, and you got to suck it up and do it. Right. <laughs> but but I hope it doesn't stay that way because not only are they a waste of time, but then you have the whole outrage culture of colleges, and I don't want my kid to be around that. That's the opposite of what kids need to be around anyway well maybe we'll talk about that later i want to chat about this instead so san diego unified uh it's our high school system san diego is taking steps to combat islamophobia now every time stories about islamophobia come up i I share these statistics because i don't know let's i think facts are important so this is according to the fbi crime statistics fbi crime statistics of all the hate crimes 20 percent of them are because of someone's religion. 20% of all the hate crimes, 20% are because of someone's religion. Most are because of race. Could be different other factors, right? But 20% are because of someone's religion. Now, across the country, there are there have been, last year, 1,402 hate crimes because of someone's religion. Now, if you ask me, that doesn't sound like a lot. 1,402? I mean, there's a country of 330 million Americans. There are trillions of interactions every single day between people of varying faiths. And in a whole year, 365 days of trillions of interactions, there's 1,402 hate crimes based on religion. Like, that doesn't seem like a lot to me, but maybe that's... You know what? It's 1,402 too many. That's the important thing, Mike. Of those... 21% 21% of them were because of someone because someone was a Muslim. 52% were because someone's Jewish. Most hate crimes because of religion are because someone's Jewish. But you never hear about that. You only hear about Islamophobia. Now, those are hate crimes. San Diego Unified's talking about bullying. So how much bullying is going on in the San Diego school district? Last year, San Diego Unified, there were seven bullying incidents because of religion. Again, (laughs) seven too many, but there's 130,000 students. I don't know how many Muslim kids there are in the district, uh, but Muslims are about 1% of the country nationwide. So let's say 2%. So let's say there's 2,000 Muslims in the San Diego Unified School District, K through 12. There were seven bullying incidents, seven. And, and to the point where now we have to take steps to combat Islamophobia in the district because there's seven bullying incidents. Hmm. Now here's the kicker with that. The district doesn't keep track of what religion the victims of the bullying were. So 
there could have been seven Jewish students who were bullied. It could have been seven Christians who were bullied. I, I don't know. It could, no one knows. It could have been five Jewish kids, one Christian, one Muslim throughout the, the year. And now we have to take steps to combat Islamophobia. Now, how? A couple of things. First, the, uh, the district is going to add uh, Islamic holidays to the calendar, to the school calendar. Uh, so Christmas has been replaced by winter and Easter been replaced by spring, but we're going to make sure that Eid al-Fitra is on the calendar. Got to be there. So separation of church and state only apply to, uh, to Christians, I guess. A couple, a couple of things they're doing. They're going to learn, uh, teach, uh, here social studies, Classes will have more information on prominent Muslims and their impact on history. And quote, other steps to promote a more positive image of Islam. Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, here's my take. And let me say, this is not, you know, angry, conservative, pitchfork on fire talking. There is plenty of social psychology research that talks about the power of groups and the importance of uniting. And that's my argument here is that all of these steps to promote a more positive image of Islam only calls attention to people's differences, students' differences. And it will make the small amount of bullying that is going on even more prevalent. I guarantee it. Jonathan Haidt, he, uh, moral psychologist, he talks about the hive hypothesis. And the idea is that, yes, humans have competitive aspects, right? We're competitive against each other. But we also have a very strong, and more than all, all the other animals, a strong desire to cooperate and cohere to each other in groups. All right, even people who think we come from chimps will admit that you will never see two chimpanzees carrying a heavy log together. You will never see one chimp lowering a branch so another chimp can grab a piece of fruit off of it. It doesn't happen. Chimps do not hunt in packs. They, they do not cooperate like humans do. Humans are completely unique like this. We have the ability to transcend our self-interest and lose ourselves into something larger than ourselves. This is how the military works. Ask any single veteran you know, and there's veterans listening right now who can give an amen to this. Any veteran will tell you that when they're in battle, and not only when, but the reason they run to the battle is because they have an overwhelming sense to protect the life of the guy next to them. It's not for their own self-preservation. If it was for their own self-preservation, they'd run the other way. But they stay because they got to protect the life of the guy next to them with the understanding that the guy next to them is going to live and maybe die to protect them. I was talking just the other day to the oldest Pearl Harbor survivor alive today, uh, uh, Ray Chavez. He's 105 Years young, sharp as attack. What an incredible man. And real short, on uh, December 7th, so he was a minesweeper. So he would work from midnight to 6 a.m., sweeping mines in the harbor. We got home, super tired. He's like, listen, honey, I am exhausted. I don't need any food. I just got to go to bed. Uh, please just don't wake me up for anything if that's okay. Went to bed. His wife comes in a couple minutes later and says the Japanese are attacking. Runs out of the house, gets on his bicycle, and sprints to the harbor. And I asked him, I said, whoa. What, 
Were you scared? No. Why did you run? Why did you go to the harbor? It was under attack. It was my job. I had I had to go. I had I had to go see what I could. How could I I could help? It was like so matter of fact. Like all these World War II guys, you know what I'm talking about. Like the the thought of there were literally a thousand different things that Ray could have done at that moment, but he chose the one that involves going to the harbor to save people's lives. And that was the only one that even crossed his mind. When everyone acts like that, you have an unstoppable military, unbeatable. History is full of stories of much smaller, unified armies beating back giant armies in disarray. Forget the technological advancements. Forget even positioning in the field. It doesn't matter. The most important thing is unity of purpose. And if you have unity of purpose, you will probably be back even a much larger army. That's, that's true for all of human history. Whoever has unity of purpose wins most of the time, truly. So to bring it back to the school, I think the goal should be to make everyone feel like a family. And the way to do that is not to call attention to racial and ethnic differences. They're obvious. They don't need pointing out. I get it. We're different. Okay. <laughs> but what do we have in common? That's what you got to focus on. This is why schools have mascots. What's the point of having a mascot? Why would a school have a mascot? That's stupid. That's a stupid thing. If you think about it, like what's, what, what is a mascot? Like why, why do we have it? It's a tool to transcend our differences and unify us. That's what the mascot's there for. We are the Bobcats. We are the whatever, the Crusaders. We are the, like, that's the point of a mascot. We're the lions. That's it. It's a unifying thing. Mascots, traditions, they celebrate shared values, common identities. There's so much psychology on this, social psychology research on how people trust each other. And if people have something in common, like I'm saying the goofiest of things, if two people, so, so psychologists, they'll have two people come in and they'll do some trust exercise and they don't really trust each other because they're strangers. But if the, uh, the researchers tell each other that each person is born on the same day, like they have the same birthday, they're more trusting of each other because now they have something in common. So someone's born on, on uh, what's the date today? April 15th. Someone's born on April 15th. Uh, 1964. Oh, look, Charlie. You, wait, April 15th, 1960. Ah, oh, born on April 16th, 1983. We have the same birthday. Not the same year, but it's same April 15th, our birthday. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Wow. Look, who cares? Those two people are more likely to trust each other because they have one thing in common. So the goal shouldn't be to be like, well, you know, Islam, it's very, here's, here's why Islam is so great. And you're, you're Christian, they're, they're Islamic, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 who cares? We're all hornets, right? We're all the hornets. We're the whatever hornets of this, like focus on what you have in common. Goodness gracious. This, this is anti-Islamophobic thing, which again, the, the Islamophobia thing, I don't even think is a real thing. I, I, I know it's, it's, it's a percentage of as real as anti-Semitism, right? So, if Islamophobia is not a real thing, then anti-Islamophobia, anti-Islamophobia only makes it worse by calling more attention to our differences when the goal of every district should be to unite students. It's going to backfire. And then you're going to be blamed for it. Conservatives, evil hate mongering conservatives are going to be blamed for it as always. 
1-888-900-3393. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on The Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio, this is Mike Slater. Slater Crusade. And uh, it's protest at Berkeley right now. Um, stupid. I, I, I don't even want to give it any attention because the whole thing's stupid. The the Everyone on every side there is stupid. <laughs> anyone anyone who showed up to that, just don't. You're just, the, what are you going to do there? I guarantee, I don't know how many people are there. Let's say there's 3,000 people. No one's mind will be changed. Not a single soul's mind will be changed on any issue whatsoever. So what's the point? And the helicopter's up there looking at people who are going to fight with each other, and there's been some fights and violence and all the rest over there. It's like, what are you, what are you doing? Stuff like that really annoys me. And, and no Trump supporter, supporter should be there either. Because what are you going to do there? Nothing. There's not, nothing productive can come from that. There's zero chance that anything productive comes from it. So I don't even want to be, uh, I don't even want to comment on it, <laughs> even though I think you got my point there. If anything, conservatives should absolutely stay away from it just to make the left look uh, even more militant, right? To make them look bad. That's why, listen, Trump loved every time there were protests everywhere he went. He loved that people were waving Mexican flags at every time he went somewhere. He loved that people started riots every time they went them somewhere because it made him look good and it made the left look terrible. So don't go out to these protests because there's a chance that you're going to look terrible and you're going to give all the rest of us a bad name. So stay home. Read a book. Harvard uh, the other day, uh, New York Times wrote an article the other day about Harvard trying to, uh, or they are, getting rid of the word Puritans out of their uh, fight song, out of their alma mater song. Getting the word Puritans out. And they're doing it for two reasons. But the one that I think is relevant here is, well, let me just say this. Harvard doesn't like, they're trying to rid their their school of every semblance of religion possible. Even though Harvard was founded as a clergy for congregationalist ministers, and it was founded by an English minister, and all the Ivy League schools started as, as uh, schools to uh, train clergy. But anyway, uh, they got to get rid of every religious thing possible. Every remnant of the past has to go away if it has any religious connotation whatsoever. So they're against the Puritans. And when you think Puritans, what, what do you think? I think in, in our, you know, we think growing up when you were taught about the Puritans, you were taught about the burning witches at the stake, right? Well, that didn't really happen that often. But what they did a lot of was silence and excommunicate people thought to be witches, right? Or, or people who were against the doctrine of the community. Is that a far stretch from the silencing of people who stay stray far from the progressive church orthodoxy and doctrine of today? Right? You're not, a, this, this, these protests are happening at Berkeley. If you're a conservative, obviously you're not allowed on Berkeley's campus, right? Outsiders are not allowed in because they might make someone from the progressive church question their beliefs and be led astray from the progressive church. So it's funny because the progressives are against the Puritans because they were uh, so close-minded, <laughs> yet they're just Puritans of today, obviously with a different or- orthodoxy and a different church doctrine, 
but the same thing, right? Let's not let anyone in who, who would question our, our church and let's kick everyone out who maybe disagrees with it. And you're seeing that on uh, Berkeley's campus again today. Mike Slater Show, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. one 800 913 and go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy Easter. So we are uh, Easter weekend. So we are uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna go there. Is that right? Are you? You prepared to go there for the next uh, probably hour? I don't see why not. If you wouldn't, if you wouldn't be here if you weren't prepared to go there, you know what I'm saying? So let's go there. New York Times published an article by Jack Turbin. Jack Turbin is a research fellow at the Yale School of Medicine. At the Yale School of Medicine, he lectures on the treatment of transgender and gender non-conforming youth. That's what it says at the bottom of this New York Times editorial. So I'm going to quote a lot of it here, just so, just so we can all be on the same page. Hannah is a 14-year-old girl clad in leggings and an oversized T-shirt with long brown hair that she curls around a finger. She was also born a boy. The government can't seem to decide whether it should affirm children like Hannah. Uh, time out. That's a word that we're going to talk about later. That's, that's the key word that I pick up out of this whole uh, editorial is the word affirm. You're going to hear it uh, a few times here. So the doctor goes on, talks about laws that the government's passed regarding transgender people, the bathrooms, blah, 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 stupid stuff. Politicians could learn something from the doctors who treat these patients. Over the past few years, it has become clear that if we support these children in their tr- children, in their transgender identities, instead of trying to change them, they thrive instead of struggling with anxiety and depression. No, it's not an either or choice necessarily. Hannah is using a puberty blocking implant 
and getting ready to embark on the path of developing a female body by starting estrogen treatment. 10 years ago, most doctors would have called this malpractice. But new data has now made it the protocol for thousands of American children. I feel around her bicep, where a hard rod just beneath her skin releases a drug that turns off the brain cells that would otherwise kick off puberty. The implant has been in place for two years, preventing the process that would have deepened her voice and given her an Adam's apple. She has been happy with the blocker, but is ready to move on. And then talks about how uh, now it's time to start estrogen, right? So the puberty blocking drug just stops puberty. But then now that she's 14, right? She started when this was 12. Now that she's 14 and all the girls around her are beginning to look more like girls. Now she wants estrogen treatment so that she can look like a girl like them. Okay, stop for a minute. Uh, I just want to make sure we're on this page. So I brought this up maybe a year or so ago, maybe two years ago for the first time. And now it's becoming much more prevalent and it's being advocated by some of the top doctors in the country, right? Here's a Yale doctor. And this is a Yale, not only a Yale doctor, but the doctor who teaches other Yale doctors about this. So this is going to become much more prevalent and it's only going to grow because the militant left is going to use the same tactics that they use to normalize gay marriage which is very simple. If you are a caring person, are you a caring person? You right now, you listen to this. Are you a caring person? Good. Of course you are. Uh, Then you'll support this. If you don't support this, then you're a Nazi. So just like gay marriage would have been inconceivable 20 years ago, you will see many kids who consider themselves, I'm saying many, I guarantee you, if not now already, uh, your kids, it depends how old your kids are, right? But will have transgender kids in their classroom. So in this story, we have Jonah, right? Jonah was born, a boy, feels like a girl. So when Jonah was 12, they they inserted this device in his arm that releases a drug that blocks the brain cells that start puberty. Now she's 14. She wants to get estrogen to look more like a girl. Why? If you block puberty now, then it's easier to have gender affirming surgery when you get older because your genitalia has not been properly formed because you never went through puberty. Got it? So 10 years ago, This was malpractice. Today, protocol. Now, let me say one more thing before we move on. We did a segment a couple weeks ago about lobotomies in America. I think think in this hour, even. Lobotomies, Lobotomies were performed from the 1940s until 1967. Just 60, excuse me, just 50 years ago, a doctor would stick an ice pick Literally an ice pick. The first doctor who did it grabbed an ice pick from his kitchen. Stick stick an ice pick above your eye, jam it into the front of your brain, swirl it around, cutting off part of your brain from the other part. And they would do this to cure things from schizophrenia to migraines. This was performed until 1967 at the Mayo Clinic at the VA. The press called it a miracle cure. 
I brought this up in the context of transgender treatment, particularly among kids. I don't care what you do when you're an adult, whatever you want, whatever floats your boat, but among kids and what this doctor does, because people get lobotomies for the same reason that parents do this puberty blocking stuff with their kids. They do it for the exact same reason. They're desperate. They feel desperate. They need a solution and they don't know what else to do. Imagine where you need to be in your life where the idea of sticking an ice pick into your brain sounds like a solution. Where do you stick the ice pick? Above my eye? And you jam it into my brain? I'll do it. Same thing. What does it take, doctor? Make the pain go away for my transgender kid. I'll do anything. Yes, put it in his arm. Put it there. Put it in his arm. Block the puberty. It's fine. Whatever it takes to make this difficult thing go away. It's desperation. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it the right thing. I'm not talking about morally right. I'm just saying it doesn't even make it the, the right thing if you're desperate to do something. As I, This is the doctor. As I talk to Hannah, I can't help thinking how different things would have been just 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, if Jonah went into the doctors and said they have gender dysphoria, the doctors would have said, okay, well, let's avoid things that are more feminine, right? So avoid gymnastics, avoid dancing, go on more dates, like play dates with boys, right? Go do stuff, do boy stuff, boy stuff. Spend more time with adult males, have more adult male role models kind of thing. Quote, that, that would have been the advice 10 years ago. Fortunately, most doctors no longer think this way. In 2012, a doctor from UC San Francisco proposed, quote, true gender true gender self-child therapy in which even the youngest children are allowed to explore their gender identity. So let me take a break here. So listen, this is happening. If you're a parent, you need to know because your kids are exposed to this right now. I was talking to a friend just a week ago, a week ago. And he said uh, uh, in in his kid's first grade class, there's a boy who started wearing a dress to school. Now, 10 years ago, Everyone in society, doctors, psychologists, the teacher, other parents, the parents, the kids' parents would have been like, nope, boys wear pants and a shirt. You're dressing like this. But now it's, well, um, let, let, let him explore. Let him explore his gender identity. That's where we are. All right. I want to wrap up this article next. one 888 Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, so let's get back to this here. So this is, uh, again, Jonah, 12 years old. Uh, at the age of 12, she, he, born boy, right, uh, started going through a non-medical, quote, social transition. So that meant changing her name 
his name from Jonah to Hannah, wearing girls' clothes, using a female pronoun. And this is, uh, this is the doctor, the Yale medical doctor. She went from the frustrated boy wearing a yarmulke to the bubbly child wearing a dress and joining the girls' bunk at summer camp. Critics point to a flawed study that suggests that roughly 80% of prepubescent children ultimately change their minds about being transgender. Of course, it's a, it's a flawed study if he disagrees with it, but if it's, a, if it's the right study, if he, if he agrees with it, then, oh, it's a great study. Even if this were true, would it have been worth forcing Hannah to live as a boy, putting her at risk for depression and perhaps suicide? Though going, through, go, though going back to a boy's name and boy's clothes would probably be hard, even a small risk of suicide is scarier. Okay. Um, here's the deal. Let's, let's talk about this 80% thing. Jonah, at 10 years old, thinks he's a girl. 80% chance he'll grow out of it by the time he hits puberty, right? Or when he hits puberty, right? When you have puberty, you're a boy, you get a lot of testosterone, puts you in that different direction, right? You're more likely to grow. 80% chance that you'll grow out of it. But this doctor thinks it's better to block his puberty, prevent the physiological changes to a boy's body that might help him out of his gender dysphoria and confusion, block that, prevent that from happening, and then a couple years later, give a estrogen. So reverse what otherwise would naturally happen. Now, if you do nothing, 80% chance Jonah will grow out of this. If you do the medical procedure, 0% chance He'll do anything but ultimately transition into a girl, which of course doesn't actually make him a girl. It just makes him a boy with high levels of estrogen and even more deformed sex organs and even more depression and isolation. None of this actually makes him a girl. But does that make sense? So if you do nothing, 80% chance you'll grow out of it. If you do this medical intervention, then a 0% chance you'll grow out of it. 0% because you are medically intervening. There's no going back at this point. All right, last line. As Hannah goes through this process... I asked her mother what worries she has for the future. Does she fear for Hannah's safety, for her love life? Mom's answer, not as much as you might think. Hannah will probably spend her life in liberal northern cities. As her mother put it, the Amtrak corridor, quote, Hannah has had no problem so far. Do I worry about dating and the rare instances when she travels outside of our bubble? Yes, but I'm grateful that Hannah is growing up in a place like this, and I hope the world will make progress. So as long as she stays in New York City, uh, in the bubble, in the progressive bubble, she's fine. Uh, Last paragraph. I hope so, too. Despite the turbulence in Washington, here in medicine, there is general agreement that we're moving in the right direction. When I first came to Yale in 2012, doctors told me puberty blockers were unethical. Classmates told me that if they had transgender children, they would, quote, raise them gay like normal kids. Try that sentence on for size. Classmates told me that if they had transgender children, they would raise them gay like normal kids. Raise them gay like normal kids. Now, Yale has a gender clinic that provides puberty blockers and hormones. Lectures on the treatment of transgender youth are part of the mandatory medical school curriculum. And I receive a steady flow of emails from students who want to dedicate their careers to helping these children. I will stop there.
All right. So here, here we are. Do you see how things progress like that? Raise them gay like normal children. And now this is the, the next thing. So there's a couple. Let's talk about three things. The political, the philosophical, and the medical. The political motivation behind this is if you can destroy the concept of gender, which is the most obvious of all the fundamental truth, if you can destroy that truth, then no other truth can stand. Right? The foundational truth of life and existence and human survival is gender, sex, male and female. But if that truth can be relative, like male or female, if that can be relative, then what truth could ever be objective? Right? Think about that. What, what is more of a foundational truth than male and female? There, there is none. And I'd argue in many ways, most truths are based off of that one. So if you can tear that down, then nothing can stand. So that's the political motivation behind it. Philosophically, how does this happen? So this is a natural progression of the uh, progressive ideology where there's no such thing as truth. And it's all about feelings. So it's Jonah, Jonah, 10-year-old Joe, 10-year-old Jonah. How do you feel? I feel like a girl. Well, that settles it. Block your puberty, give them estrogen. Like, whoa. On college campuses, it's it's I feel. That's I feel, therefore it is true. I, I feel offended, therefore I am a victim. Right? So it's the same, like, blah, blah, like kind of whatever, you know. But with serious ramifications, and that leads to the medical. I think many, I think, I think the doctor, a lot of doctors like this person, I think they mean well. But when confronted with a difficult situation, which this definitely is, I don't mean to make light of it by any means, it's a very difficult situation. Instead of it, in order to avoid the truth, they offer easy answers. Not that any of what Hannah's going through is easy. I don't blame Jonah, the little boy, little Hannah. I don't blame him all. He doesn't. He's 14 years old. I'm not saying any of this is easy, but it's not based on truth. The doctors involved are humans and humans can be easily confused and parents in crisis can be easily deceived. The kids attend. I don't know any better. The same desperation that makes, look, makes suicide look like an answer leads to this, which is just as not, not based on truth and love and, and reality. Neither are an answer. There was a doctor who told parents of a kid with gender dysphoria, do you want a happy girl or a dead boy. Okay, so the, the, their kid was a, born a boy thinking about wanting to be a girl. And the doctor says, do you want a happy girl or a dead boy? Meaning if you don't, if you don't transition your son to a girl, he will commit suicide. He will be dead. And if you do transition him to a girl, he'll be super happy. So do you want a happy girl or a dead boy? Like you, Like that is wildly inappropriate to lay out, lay it out as if those are the only two options. But do you see how easy it is to be confused and deceived? 
science is often, often wrong. There's a story. Um, a Mayo Clinic did a study. It was just the other day where they, they found patients who went to two different doctors. So they went to, a, they went, they got a second opinion, right? So they went to a doctor, got an opinion, and then they went to another doctor and got an opinion. The second doctor had the same diagnosis as the first doctor 12% of the time, 88% of the time they were different diagnoses for the same person. It is stunning how often science has been wrong in history from simple things like the tectonic plates to a little more advanced things like hookworm to washing your hands before you deliver a baby at which doctors didn't do and countless women died from infection because doctors never washed their hands. And the guy who suggested Semmelweis, the guy who suggested we wash our hands was excommunicated from medicine because of it, right? Like science is so often wrong and medicine is so often wrong as well. I'm reading a book right now about the Wright brothers and long story short, there was a bully in town who had a toothache and they gave him cocaine. The doctors gave him cocaine for the toothache and he took a baseball bat and he, he jacked uh, Wilbur Wright over the face with it and almost killed him and prevented him from going to Yale, which ultimately he ended up doing the bicycle shop and being the first person to fly. But the point is, they get doctors just giving cocaine out to people. Medicine is often wrong. Lobotomy is another example. But people are desperate. But sociologically, how did this happen? That's what I want to talk about next. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. All right. So why will transgenderism become uh, normal? They're going to take the same path as the, the gay marriage movement. So after many recommendations, I picked up this book. It's called The Marketing of Evil. It's not about gay marriage. That's just a chapter. Uh, chapter one, actually, deals with the gay lobby. And here's how it goes. So coming out of the AIDS epidemic, the story is about how quickly society went from a, a fear or a hatred or, or at least a not understanding of gay people to full on acceptance so quickly. How did that happen? It started with two guys, Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen. These weren't just two bums. Kirk was a Harvard educated researcher in neuropsychiatry and Madsen had a doctorate in politics from Harvard and he was the expert on public persuasion tactics. So Kirk, who wrote an article in 1987 telling gay people that they need to get straights as he called it, straight people quote, to think that it being gay is just another thing with a shrug of their shoulders. And once you do that, your battle for legal and social rights is virtually won. So, you, so the, he's telling gay people, listen, you just got to get straight people to think that, eh, you know, whatever, shrug their shoulders about it. And then you're in. So that was in 1987, got a lot of feedback. 1989, he wrote a book. These two guys wrote a book called After the Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s. So there's four techniques that he talked about, four specific techniques. 
this isn't after the fact. This isn't like, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to look at what happened and put it into four categories. This was before it happened, saying this is what we need to do from this point forward. First, normalize. Normalize homosexuality. I'm quoting from the book. In practical terms, that means that cocky leathermen, drag queens, and other words I can't say, should not appear in gay commercials and other public presentations. Instead, conventional young people, middle-aged women, and older folks of all races should be featured. Not to mention the parents and straight friends of gays. It, can, it cannot go without saying, incidentally, that groups on the farthest margins of acceptability, such as the North American Man-Boy Love Association, must play no part at all in, in our campaign. Suspected child molesters will never look like victims. Okay, so the first thing is to normalize homosexuality. That leads us to the second thing, victimize. Normalize, then victimize. So this was right after the, or right in the midst of, slash after the AIDS epidemic. And he said, listen, the goal here is instead of making gay people more isolated from society, we got to spin it to turn gay people into victims. Quote, I'm quoting from the book, as cynical as it may seem, AIDS gives us a chance to establish. So he even recognizes how like, as cynical as it may seem, AIDS gives us a chance to establish ourselves as a victimized minority legitimately deserving of America's special protection and care. How, given the horrid hand that AIDS has dealt us, dealt us, can we best play it? Right, so how can we spin AIDS into a positive? Well, easy, make us look like victims. So normalize and victimize. Third thing, isolate. Who? Christians. Turn Christians into, quote, hysterical backwoods preachers, drooling with hate, to a degree that looks both comical and deranged. So he goes through this, uh, like what an ad campaign, what a marketing campaign should look like in, in, this, in this regard. Quote, for example, for, so imagine a 30, if they were doing a 30 second commercial to promote gay rights, which I'll get to later. Um, that term I just used, gay rights. For example, for several seconds, an unctuous, so fat, a fat beady eyed Southern preacher is shown pounding the pulpit in rage against those perverted, abominable creatures. While his tirade continues over the soundtrack, the picture switches to heart-rending photos of badly beaten persons or of gays who look decent, harmless, and likable. And then we cut back to the poisonous face of the preacher. The contrast speaks for itself. The effect is devastating normalize, victimize, isolate Christians, and then finally born that way. That's the fourth thing. Quote, we argue that for all practical purposes, gays should be considered to have been born that way. Even though, these are not my words. These are, I, let me be clear too. This isn't, I'm not quoting from the, the conservative book. I'm quoting from After the Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fear of Gays in the 90s, written in 1989 by two gay guys who wanted gay marriage, et cetera, right? This, this, this is their battle plan. We argue that for all practical purposes, gays should be considered to have been born gay, even though sexual orientation for most humans seems to be the product of complex interactions between innate predispositions and environmental factors during childhood and early adolescence. So he's like, 
just say you were born gay. Listen, we know that for most people, there's a it's a combination, and I want to talk about that in a second too. It's a combination between you know innate predispositions and environmental factors as you grow up. But to su- just to say you're gay, that you're born that way, you're born that way, to suggest in public that homosexuality might be a choice is to open the can of worms and give the religious intransigence a stick to beat us with. So the idea is, uh, if you say it's a choice, then that means you can choose to not be gay. So you, right, you can't ever make it a choice. It has to be born this way. Are you born this way or is it a choice? Oh, born this way, born this way, born this way. Don't ever say it's a choice. I'm born this way. So four distinct and purposeful efforts from the gay lobby, and it has worked like a charm. Worked like a charm in no time. Another thing is the gay rights that I mentioned. So this, they term, in this book is what coined this term. They said the word homosexual is too graphic. Too graphic. People get images in their mind. It's too sexual. Don't use that word. Instead, say gay. Okay, so now it's not homosexual, it's gay. And then make it about rights. Even though gay people have all the rights of everyone else, no one can be against denying rights to anyone, right? So if we act like this is a civil rights issue, like was for black people, even though gay people could always vote and ride public transportation and all that, right? But we're going to turn into an issue about rights. So it's gay rights. So all of this combined went from the AIDS epidemic to gay marriage being uh, legalized through the Supreme Court in three decades. That's stunning. I believe the same thing is going to be done with transgenderism in general transgender rights you've already heard that term but it's all the old techniques they're victims that's got to be the first thing they're victims this is why and i've said this before the the gay lobby they were done they finished gay gay rights gay marriage is now legal in in all 50 states according to the supreme court so they were done they finished so they looked around they're like well now what do we do and that's when transgender bathrooms became a thing they're literally looking to pick a fight because they had nothing else to do. They built up this whole infrastructure and then they finished and they're like, well, I'm do something else now. So that's where trans, the whole, that's why the transgenderism thing is like a thing all of a sudden. So why do they make up the bathroom problem in the first place? Transgender people have always gone to the bathroom. They've always used public bathrooms. It was never a thing. It was never an issue for anyone. It wasn't an issue for the transgender person. It wasn't an issue for any, uh, any other one else in the bathroom. Like no, no one ever had a problem with it, but the, they made it a thing. They picked a fight by making it a ordinance in Charlotte, uh, legalizing it even though it was always like they did that so that a whole thing would happen and then they could lift up transgender people as victims you got to be a victim if you want to fight for rights you got to be a victim they created victimhood then of course normalize it um that's why there's tv shows about it my wife picked up a parenting mag or they mailed a parenting magazine to our house I would, it's just like an ads basically. And we opened up the first, the first page was about transgenderism and transgender kids and how you need to blah, 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 all this stuff. It's like, well, what, 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 what is it? And again, if you're against it, then you're a backwoods preacher foaming at the mouth. Right. And then of course they were born that way, which is why to go back to the Yale doctor, you, they're not, they don't call it a sex change operation anymore. It's a gender affirming operation. 
right? It's, it's all framed to get this person back to their birth gender. I was born this way. It's a gender affirming operation. It's the same thing. It's the exact same thing. It's all just cycling back around with a different thing, different topic, but same, same, same method. If it worked so good last go around, why change anything? I actually met with a uh, transgender person the other day, went out to lunch with him. Uh, he called me up or he, he wrote me an email. So was, he was a guy. Now he's a girl, a woman. And he called me up or you know, male to female. They call. And he, he sent me a super sweet email. I was like, Hey Slater, listen, I would just love to talk to you, tell you my story. He's super conservative. She is super conservative. Uh, like we agree on every political issue you can imagine. Gun, like super gun nut guy when he was a, a, a man, uh, gun rights, constitution, voted for Trump, like whole thing. Uh, and we talked for like two hours and told me, uh, she told me his whole story and it was all everything I just said there. Uh, but particularly, particularly the born this way thing I was born this way. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty. But it's so complicated. It's not. You can't talk about the radio. But it's 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 way too complicated, complex. But it's not that simple. Actually, you know what? Let's talk about it on the radio. I'll come back. I'll explain the. I'll explain the born this way debate. Let's chat about that. We'll get a few minutes when we come back. Uh, it's not. It's not that simple. As it's funny, you know, the left, are, the progressives are always the people who are like, oh, let's. Uh, there's so much nuance. There's nuance. And, and it's conservatives usually who are like, no, black or white. But here it's the progressives who are like, born that way, done, end of story. And I'm going to come back on the radio next and say, like, well, there's actually a little more nuance to it than that. I'll explain that next. Mike Slater Show, AM7, or excuse me, uh, Mike Slater Show on The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater is on. This this topic deserves more than three and a half minutes, but let me give it a, a go. So the born this way argument. It's it's the old nature versus nurture. It's what it is, right? So when arguments go back and forth like this one often does, nature versus nurture, it's hard to come down with a distinct answer one way or the other. Because if it is, if it's hard to come down in a distinct answer one way or the other, it's probably because there's a third option. So the latest theory, the one that I subscribe to, is, and it's not even about being gay necessarily. I'm going to apply that to this model after, but just in general. The idea is that we are born with a roughed draft, a rough draft. We have certain inclinations when we are born. That's nature. But nurture is the editing and rewriting process that goes on throughout your life and certainly through your childhood, right? That's the nurture. So it's both. You're born with a nature, certain inclinations, but then there's a nurturing that takes place throughout the rest of your life. It's not one or the other. And only one or the other. It's clearly not obvious one, really one or the other. That, just, that doesn't make any sense. So on the gay question, 
maybe you're born with an inclination towards that. That's your rough draft that you were born with. But that doesn't mean you have to act on it. Now, on the flip side, maybe you're not born with that inclination, but maybe you have a traumatic something when you're when you're a boy, right? Maybe you're you're assaulted when you're a young boy. So that's part of the rough draft, or that's part of the, the rewriting process that happens when you're growing up, that it can affect the original inclination that you were born with. I think this interpretation of it answers the question. Why all of a sudden, right? Like why all of a sudden in your kid's classroom are there transgender kids? I, did you know a transgender person growing up in your school? I knew none, none, none at all. I didn't even know, I didn't even heard of it. So it's not that there are more gay kids all of a sudden or transgender kids all of a sudden. It's that society is a part of this rewriting process. The society is a part of this editing and rewriting that rough draft that people are born with. And it's not even necessarily just making kids gay, but it is making boys more effeminate. There's no doubt about that. I'll share again. My, one of my wife's best friends is a kindergarten teacher in Tennessee. And randomly, a, like a couple months ago, I asked her what the biggest problem with kids is today. And she said, instantly, boys not being raised to be boys. She said, boys don't want to play outside. During recess, they don't want to play outside. They, they ask her if they can come inside to play. And she's like, no, you're a boy. Go run around. Our entire education system from K through 12 is designed for girls. Boys, sit there, listen, don't fidget, write down what I say. That's not generally how boys learn. And if a boy acts up, we punish them, we drug them. Boys in schools are seen as defective girls. Why are you so hyperactive? Here, take these pills, act more like a girl, sit, be still. I was at a friend's house, uh, they have a granddaughter, she's like five. And we were over there with another set of friends who have a, a little boy, it's like three. And we went in their backyard and the boy was there for the very first time. And as soon as he walked outside, he goes into the garden. He's climbing on the rocks. He's building a fort. And my friend, the grandpa goes, oh, our granddaughter has been here every week for five years and she's never been back there. But this boy's been here for two seconds and already he's building a fort in the... <laughs> so here I am. I like it. The fact that I have to prove that boys and girls are different shows how far we've strayed from the truth. <laughs> my point is nature has a role, but nurture plays a huge role as well. So really... Don't ignore culture. Set it. Set the culture in your You're home. Spread the word. To Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.